I have no notes. I just have like the whole darn book of Romans to talk about today. I can't stop wanting to talk about Romans. And I told you a little bit last week, and I'll tell you a little bit more today. This isn't going to be a... Um, you know, one of those kind of messages that builds to a crescendo with a big altar call. It's going to be God's word and its truth, and he wants us to see it and understand it. He wants us to embrace it. He wants us to allow it to transform us and change us. And when we read Romans, again, I, I, you probably heard this a hundred times from me, but I'm learning to be a big-picture reader versus a verse-by-verse reader. I read a verse, and I say, okay, I need to... It tells me to do something. I need to do that. It tells me not to do something. I need to not do that. But the Holy Spirit is, is allowing me and growing me to the place where I'm not there yet. I mean, I still, you know, if I get a paragraph in context without really trying hard, that's a good day for me. Um, but he showed me in Romans this. It's like almost the whole darn thing. That's why Romans is considered probably the, the most theologically complete book in the Bible. That if all you had was the book of Romans, you could you could truly get a very excellent understanding of what it means to be Christian and to follow Jesus from the book of Romans. So um, last week, we started with the road, what's called the Romans road to salvation. I just want to quickly review that in case people weren't here to understand that that Romans lays out this path. You got to wind your way through it to find it, but this path that describes what it means to be saved. And then we'll start with what we have this week and see how far we get in the the place we'll start there then is the results of what happens to you and to me when we actually get saved. So Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that all have sinned. That there's nobody who of their own righteousness, of their own abilities, um, has met the glory of God. This is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every person outside of Jesus is lost. And then in uh, Chapter 6 and verse 23, again, it says, for the wage of sin is death. So now we understand that we're all lost, and the wages of our lostness is death. And, and that's eternal death, right? Every man woman is, is uh, apportioned a certain amount of time on this earth, and then they die. Then either life again starts or death again starts, life being with God eternally in heaven, and, and death means being away from God. So the wages of the sin that we're all guilty of is eternal death, but that God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So many people think that i got to get right. You know, i got to get buff before I go to the gym and work out with the buff people. i got to get right in my life before I go to church and hang out with all the holy people. It's not true. Jesus came while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait and die for a good man or a righteous man. He died for the sinner. So the, the church, while it, it should be full of very holy people walking the narrow path of righteousness with Christ, it's also a hospital for everybody that's at every point along that path or even for those that haven't gotten on that path yet because he came and demonstrated God's love and his own love while we were sinners. We were not his friend when he died for us. In chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, it speaks of the word of faith. And the word of faith is this two-pronged thing that describes how you actually get saved, and that's by confessing with your mouth that Jesus would be the Lord of your life, that you would submit your will to his, that you've made that decision, which encompassed in there is the repentance that you see in the Gospels being spoken of by John the Baptist and, about, and by Jesus. This repentance is contained in Jesus being Lord, and then it follows that if you would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you would be saved. So the word of faith, when you read faith, you have to be careful because... 
it doesn't imply in the case of salvation only uh, a mental ascension to Jesus as having been the Savior. It also requires that we would submit ourselves to him as Lord. In Romans 10, a little bit further, it says, For whoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's not for some people. It's for all people. It's for whosoever should call on the name of the Lord. The way you call on the name of the Lord is with that word of faith, which is the confession of him as Lord and the, the believing in your heart that he really is who God's word says he is. And then in chapter 8, in verses 1 through 4, it speaks that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've taught a number of times that you're in only one of two places. You're either found in Adam or you're found in Jesus. So when God the Father sees you, he either sees you as completely restored because everything that we've ever done to transgress, to separate ourselves from God, is hidden in Christ. He's our, he's our covering, he's our cleansing. Or you're in Adam. When we stand for judgment... Will either be found in Christ or not in Christ in Adam, and at that point there won't be any opportunity for us to repent or to be sorry or to confess or to believe. The opportunity will have been gone. So, if you're in Christ, then there is no condemnation. Your condemnation was taken by Jesus. It was taken in the beating that He took, the scourging, in the. Uh, the humiliation of having the crown jammed into his head and his beard plucked out of his face, in the nailing to the cross, in all the torment, all the spiritual torment that we have no idea. Because he had to pay for every ounce of um, God's anger and fury that every single person was going to ever take. Whether they confessed him or not, he paid for it. Because it's for all. Okay, No condemnation if you're found in Christ Jesus. Okay, so then today we move on and we talk about what happens as a result of being saved. We'll, we'll touch on some verses. Everything is going to come from Romans. All these, however long this whole thing takes, is going to come from Romans. So in chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, we start to see what happens once you get saved and how you would know that you are saved. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So we've been adopted into God's household. This was written in a time where uh, Rome was the power over uh, Israel, the territory of Israel, and, and much of the known world at that time. So when they speak of adoption, they're speaking of adoption in the terms that they would have understood in the Roman culture. And in the Roman culture, an adopted son is 100% equal to a um, biologically born son or daughter. Right. So there is no second class. There's no... Almost, when, when the Bible speaks of us having been adopted, it's adopted in the full measure, nothing less than Jesus, who would have been the only begotten of God in that way. We are sons the way Jesus is a son. Okay? It goes on to say then, um, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So, all that is in inheritance for Christ is in inheritance for us. When we go to heaven, I don't understand all this. Matter of fact, I'm not sure I understand much of it. But the word teaches us that the glory of God will be so present. We will have been given this body that is like his. We will know as we are known. Right, right now, 
we don't even know ourselves like God knows us. He knows us as we could ever possibly be known. The most that there is to know, everything that there is to know, God knows. And Scripture says that when we go to be with Jesus, we will know as we are today known by him. There's nothing that's going to be held back. The cool thing for me is that it will, he's infinite. It will continue to come and continue to come and continue to come and continue to come. And his glory, whenever we think we've seen it all, God will reveal a new facet of his glory to us. And for all of eternity, we'll be heirs to everything that God has. The mind can't begin to imagine what God has prepared for those that love him. Okay, now... The next part, though, reads, uh, says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering, sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So it's starting to, to, starting to shed some light, not only on what it means to be saved, but also what it means, this process that we're going to go through. The, the next part that we're going to talk about is this process of transformation and, and discipleship out of the book of Romans. And it, and it clearly tells us that it's not all roses and sunshine. There's going to be suffering if we're going to drink from the true cup of Jesus. It's got both in there, okay? We suffer with him just like we glory in him. But Paul says, now remember, Paul is the one who was called up to heaven, and he said even he didn't understand it, whether it was in the spirit or in the flesh, I don't know. But I was called up to heaven, and I was given such things to see and to know that I'm not even allowed to speak of them. They can't be spoken of, but they're so amazing. Those are the kind of things that we have to hold on to, that we learn from Paul, because we, well, some of you maybe, I don't know, some people actually have had heaven experiences, literal heaven experiences. I haven't like that. But we have it through Paul to see, and Paul can tell us that the sufferings, and, and trust me, if we think we suffer, it's nothing like Paul suffered. I mean, Paul, that guy suffered. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He took the however many, 39 plus one lashes, I think twice. I mean, Paul suffered for the cause. As a matter of fact, when the guy went to um, pray for Paul that he would be baptized in the Holy Spirit and that the scales would fall off his eyes, he didn't want to go because he knew Paul was a persecutor of the church. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Ananias or Ananias. I can never get that guy's name right. And he said, no, Paul must know that how he must suffer for my name. Paul was, was taught, told that your program's going to be tough. And he's telling us in some ways our program is going to be tough too. But Paul, who went through all that, said, I consider it nothing in comparison to what's coming. And we need to do the same thing as we're going through this process. Okay, um, Romans chapter 6, 11 through 14, more about what it means to be saved. And we really got to internalize this. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. I consider myself, Pat Brady, dead to sin. I'm dead to it. It has no authority, no control, no power, no nothing over me. I am dead to sin. Sin could stand right next to me and tell me whatever it wants. If, if I listen to it and believe it, it might influence me into the into the results or the uh, outcome of a lie, but there is no authority in sin over Pat Brady or you if God looked down and sees you found in Christ today. We've got to understand it. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. See, he's telling us, if you sin, it's because you let it. It doesn't have a power over you. It doesn't have a control over you. Now, it can be sneaky in the hands of the enemy to try to cause you and influence you outside of what God would have you to do. But the word says, don't obey its lusts. 
which means you don't have to obey its laws, which means it has no control, literally. Okay? So when you're about to sin, you know, uh, we read James, he talks about this thing that's our mouth, and if we control our mouth, we're a perfectly righteous person. When somebody tweaks you off or tweaks me off, and I'm about to take a step outside of Christ, if I say, well, the devil made me do it, or you led me to this and you caused me, it's no, you chose to. Because sin has no authority over the believer. Okay? All right. Do not let sin, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, excuse me, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Okay? All right, so, so the, the effects of being saved, of confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, of making that step of faith, are first that you're saved. God gives you his spirit. I should have put that one in there too. That, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. You now become the temple of God. That's why the church isn't the building that we're building. That building is a place for the church to come together and meet, to worship God, to, to chew on God's word, to exhort and edify one another, to pick each other's burdens up. It's just a place so we don't have to do it in the rain. It's a place so we can do it where it's warm, well, I don't know, we need a new furnace. Maybe it'll be a little cold in there. But it's a place. It's not the church. We're the church. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What else happens when we get saved? We have this process that sin, it's not a process, it's an event, that sin no longer controls us anymore. Right? That It has no power. That power was broken in our confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. The other thing is that we get to be God's kids. We get a new daddy. Till we cry out, Abba, Father, and he hears us because we're his. Now, what about the person that's not saved? Are they a child of God? Sometimes we see, you know, oh, children of God, he, you know, he loves them all. Well, personally, I don't know that I would win a doctrinal battle about this, but I think what Scripture teaches us is that we're all image bearers of God and that God loves all of us, right? While we were yet sinners, he sent Christ. It was his love that sent Christ. So the fact that, I might be found in Christ and somebody else might not be found in Christ. No prefer. God doesn't prefer one person over another. The love that he has for me and that other person, equal. No better. But I don't think they're a son. John says in chapter 1 that those who receive him, I think, are given the right to be called sons of God. This scripture says that, that because of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we get to be children of God. So I, I really believe that the church, and maybe Israel, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not quite so sure about that one, because Old Testament does refer to Israel as children of God, so I'm not positive about that. But in a New Testament context, non-born Jew people, children of God are the church. Okay, next. What happens in this process now? Understanding that, there, that we were lost and, and we confessed Jesus and were found some of the benefits that we see in Scripture are that we're children of God, that we're not slaves to sin anymore. Then this process starts that ultimately culminates in us looking as the perfect reflection of Christ. The, the, the word speaks to us as, um, as a bride to a bridegroom. And in the, in the Jewish wedding process, there would be a betrothal, like an engagement, but kind of deeper than an engagement. And then the man of the couple would go off and prepare a place for his bride. Maybe go back to his father's home and start to prepare a place so that he can have 
his wife, when they get married, come to live with him. And then the bride goes off and prepares herself for the husband. That's the process that's happening now in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and our willingness to cooperate with him is that we are now being transformed into the perfect likeness of Jesus so that he will, when time comes, receive a bride without spot or without wrinkle, perfect and holy in his sight. That's the process. So that process happens through transformation and discipleship. So some scriptures here. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. This is the one I used before we worship today. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? So, Paul is exhorting the, the church in Rome, all of us, that we would present ourselves not unholy and stained, but holy and acceptable to God. As, a, as an act of worship to God, our members, our bodies, our, our thoughts, our words, our actions, as a sacrifice on the altar to God, holy and acceptable to Him. That's the call for our lives, is that when we're driving down the road with the, you know, the Jesus sticker on our car and somebody cuts us off, if we respond in a bad witness, it's, we haven't presented ourselves to God because we haven't submitted to his will, right? When the person that, that cuts us off or who knows why they're having a bad day, when we respond in love and in kindness, and maybe we say a little prayer, Lord, I don't know what's caused that person to have such a bad day, but I pray they get loose of it. Now you're submitting yourself on the altar of God as a, as, as a sacrifice that's holy and acceptable. When you um, honor your parents, when you... Uh, um, Love your wife as Jesus loved the church and give yourself up for her. Those are things that you're doing in accordance with the word that would be offering yourself as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He goes on then in verse 2 to say that we should no longer be conformed to this world. Don't conform to the ways of the world. Scripture in other places, maybe in Romans 2, talks about, matter of fact, James, we read James this past week. James says that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy to God. You're literally an enemy of God in that time where you were having friendship and fellowship with the world. So um, the word says that you shouldn't get drunk. So if you drink to the point of excess, and I don't know where drunk is for anybody. I know drunk is none, or not drunk, you know, sober is none. Is one beer okay? Maybe, I don't know. But when you take yourself to that point of excess, you've become friendly with the world. You've come outside of God's will for your life, and you're literally his enemy. He's saying... Don't conform to those ways anymore. The way that when the guy cuts you off in traffic and you chase him and you bump him with your bumper and you flip him off with your hand and you cuss him with your mouth. See, those are the ways of the world that we're to be transformed from. We don't conform to those. We're transformed from those. And you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Remember, sin isn't your master anymore. Righteousness is your master. So as those things come and and the thoughts come and the attacks come and, and the influence of flesh and the enemy come... We're not to be conformed to those anymore. We're to be transformed. How does transformation happen? By the renewing of our minds. We talked a few weeks ago, gosh, I lose track, sometimes maybe it's months, but we talked quite a bit about fortresses and strongholds in our minds. Remember we said that whenever we have a spiritual battle and we lose that spiritual battle for our thoughts in our mind, what what gets erected is this fortress. When, When we submit our minds and we come into agreement with the enemy, 
we allow him to then build this fortress or a stronghold in our minds. And from that place, it's like a beachhead. If you, if you think in military terms, you know, like uh, in Normandy, when, when the Allied forces were, you know, making this big offensive attack against the, the Germans, they picked a spot on the beach and they just flooded that beach with their resources and they made a beachhead. And from that beachhead, they were able to work their way into the mainland, work their way into the mainland, and ultimately have this offensive. But it had to start with a beachhead. That's what happens when we submit our minds to the enemy. We, create, we allow him to create a fortress. And it can start out little. But if we don't deal with it, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, our reality is from the fortress and not from the truth. Because spiritual warfare is all about truth and lies. Right? We talked about the weapons of our warfare being powerful. For what? The tearing down of fortresses. So the truth, the weapon that we have, the offensive weapon, the word of God is powerful for tearing these things down. So what Paul's trying to say in these verses is that we don't conform to the ways of the world, that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The renewing of our minds is even, it's a function of repentance. It's changing the way we think so that every response, right? Nothing comes out of your mouth that doesn't find its way as a thought first, that the response to every stimulus, whether it be good or evil, would be Christ-like. That it would be processed through the renewed mind that's conformed to the truth that we find in the Word of God that's submitted to the Holy Spirit inside of us and then what comes out is kingdom versus evil. Okay? All right. So, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see the outcome of the process? It's proving God's will. Um, I want to use a miracle example. I keep thinking about Dana in Africa, right? The world does not see blind eyes opened. It just doesn't happen, right? But the kingdom reality is that blind eyes open. So Dana, in her faith, in the transformation that's happened in her mind, in the faith that she has in the truth, would have the, a carnal person would never ask a blind person's eyes to see because it would be foolishness to them, silliness. It would never happen. But Dana Rose, her mind is different because in that area, it's been transformed. So when she put her hands on the lady that's blind and she speaks the truth over that lady and the eyes open up, what did she just do? She proved the acceptable, good, perfect will of God. In that lady's, in that lady's body, the kingdom came down and invaded that lady's reality. It's awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read you a little bit more on this topic and then we'll just stop for today. Um, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our instruction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. So ultimately, our exaltation, what we exalt in is this hope of the glory of God. See, we haven't, we haven't received that glory yet. We got, a, we got a bus ticket, but the bus hasn't arrived at the station. Sadly, we can get off the bus, which, please, I hope nobody gets off the bus. But we haven't, we're saved now, but we're saved not yet. Because ultimately your salvation happens 
when you leave this life and you stand for judgment and then you either get the thumbs up or the thumbs down, ultimately. So our hope is in the glory of God, which would be in our eternity. Now, God in his grace allows us to experience his glory now, but the hope that Paul is talking about is eternal hope here. See, if you, if you recognize a parallel scripture to this next one from your reading in James. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that, the tri- that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So this process of transformation, remember we talked about um, in an earlier verse, suffering, in the name of Christ, in his sufferings. Now we're understanding that the process is built often on tribulations, right? The kidney stone in Africa was, was, a, was a tribulation. It was a, a process that I had to persevere through. Mark Nippa with his back surgery, crying out to God, singing worship songs to God in the pain. He's persevering through the pain, and God's using that to teach him to stand, The outcome of this, then, is, if you remember from James, that we would be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So tribulation, if if you think that having come to Christ means that you've ended any kind of trouble you're going to have, not true. You, You are going to suffer because he needs us to suffer. I don't understand why. He's smarter than me. His ways and his thoughts are higher than my ways and my thoughts. So I just submit myself to the fact that that's the truth. And that I will suffer some tribulations as he molds me and shapes me so that I would have proven character. See, that's what we're looking for. When we look like Christ, it's, it's manifest in our character. It's manifest in the fruit of the Spirit that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. When we see those things coming out of our lives, then we see the evidence of Christ through the Holy Spirit in us and the transformation that's happening. We sang this verse in, in the song, one of the songs we sang during worship today. But this is where your hope comes from. In this, man, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. Trust me. If I could pray, I did. I said, Lord, when I had the kidney stone, I said, Lord, listen, if, if you've accomplished everything that you purpose to accomplish in me by suffering through this kidney stone, I'm asking you to transport it. I don't want to pass it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to nothing. I want it just to go someplace else. Like he transported, was it Philip after the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He was here, and now he's over there. That's why I want that kid, just make it go someplace else. If, if you're done, if you're not, then I'll suffer some more because I want you to work out in me everything that needs worked out. Okay? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. So when you're in that time of trial. And it's not all the time, right? I mean, there's great times of, of refreshing and peace and, and just really abundance in the Christian life. But there are times of trial. And when you're in those times, you can set your hope on the fact that God takes all things. When you hear us say, well, that's an all thing, that's what we're talking about. An all thing is anything that you're suffering. How am I going to pay my bills? Don't know. But God's going to work it out for your good because... You love him, and you're called according to his purpose. You stand in faith. All things. God works all things out. So if you've got a kidney stone and you're suffering with it, then 
God's working something. Because he could control it. He could take it away. And you can pray to him, and he might take it away. He, he did for me. Let, just made it go away. Today, at 40 minutes ago, is two weeks. I never passed it. I never suffered another ounce of pain. It just, it's gone. Just totally gone. Hallelujah. Praise God. You're going to get sick of hearing about my kidney stone, aren't you? God will have to give me a different miracle to talk about pretty soon. Okay, so that's, we're probably halfway through the conversation about Romans, maybe two-thirds of the way through. We're going to talk about um, stumbling blocks and conscience, how, the, how Romans speaks to us about our relationships with other people, but that'll be next week, all right? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your people. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the transformation that you're working in your people. I pray, God, that each and every one of us would have a humble heart that would be willing to submit to your ways and to your work in us. Lord, you've given us free will. You don't force us to submit. But I pray that we would, through humility, through honor, and through just understanding that your ways are better and higher than ours, so that each and every one of us will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I pray, Lord, that these strongholds, these these thought patterns that don't stand true, these um, speculations in our minds that don't stand true to your word would all come crashing down, come crashing down, come crashing down, and that, that every fortress and stronghold in our mind would be built from our knowledge of your word and your truth. I pray that each and every one of these folks be blessed and healthy and well and that we would be your bright and shiny church, Lord. Salt to this earth, light to this earth. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. All righty. Well, you have a great week, all right? I will too.